We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. It's a follow-up. Uh, I know you, you haven't been with the guys long, and but just to see Mikhail have that kind of game, uh, just your thoughts on, on his performance tonight. I have one of the best feelings. Um, been around a lot of guys in this league over the years, and he one of the best guys I think I've ever been around. So to see him do well and to see his game blossoming the way it is, um, it's nice because he, he deserves it. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Lots of stuff to talk about on today's episode. Coming up later in the episode, Jackson Frank, an excellent writer, is joining us just to talk about the start for the Phoenix Suns. My name is Mike. I'm here as always with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? It's been quite a weekend, uh, Mike. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't, we're not going to recap the games. No. But we should touch on the games because yeah. it was a couple of it was a couple of interesting games, and I was very I was not mad after the Pistons lost, but I was disappointed, and then I was really feeling down about the matchup against um, Indiana going into last night, and they proved me wrong in that one. So I don't know, kind of conflicting feelings about how yeah. things all turned out. Obviously, feeling good about where the Suns are in general. They're seven and three. They're one of only four teams in the NBA with uh, seven wins. That's a very good place to be right now. Best record um, but in yeah. the NBA, technically. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing place to be. But uh, but yeah, how'd you how'd you feel about the pair of games? Because I thought it, uh, they yeah. were they were interesting. Well, I'll say this: it's fair to be mad about the uh, Detroit game. I I think that's very fair. Detroit one right. and seven, a not very good team, and the Suns let them win. And there was some bizarre coaching decisions. But 
the point that I tried to make and that I will continue to try to make is that there was nothing that happened in that game that I saw as like this big giant glaring problem that will be a persistent problem going forward. Had some threes dropped, they would have won an ugly game. That's what we would have said at the end of that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just some extra threes dropped. Obviously, early in the game, everything was falling, and then they just went completely cold. That happens with teams that shoot a lot of threes, so it didn't really bother me. The way I figured it is if if there continues to be persistent weird problems or coaching decisions following the Indiana game, then maybe I would start to be slightly concerned. And, of course, that was not the case, even though Cameron Payne, by the way, out with an ankle injury. We're going to have to monitor that because of how good he's been. Obviously, we've talked a lot about him on this podcast, but once the Indiana game came and went, they looked very good. They played very well. The threes uh, dropped quite a bit in that game, and I think the defensive effort was a lot higher. And similar problems. They had issues with size in the Detroit game, playing against size, and then they played against a team that had much better bigs in Indiana, and they handled them pretty well. So it was it was a nice little roller coaster ride for a lot of Suns fans. Those back to back games, I'd say. And I think an important thing to note: two and one now against the zone because the zone was a big narrative uh, after Detroit deployed it against us. And I was mad too. My initial reaction after that game was, "We can't even beat a zone. What's going on here? You know, we we've got five guys who can dribble dribble the ball supposedly, and two elite scorers, and and we can't do this." I rewatched the game the next morning in a more clear-headed state of mind. And what I saw was a, a lot of open shots. Really, a lot of open shots. Um, shots that the offense was designed to take. And so, again, I, you know, I can't really argue with the shot quality that the Suns were generating in that game. And importantly, they came out the next night, um, saw some zone against Indiana, and they dismantled it. And in a previous game, Monty talked about this because I think it was Kellen Olsen who asked him about it after the Detroit game. They saw a lot of zone in the second matchup against Sacramento uh, when they had that back-to-back with them early in the season, and they dismantled the zone there too. So they're 2-1. and one. I would not say that the zone is some major weakness that yeah. it, every team is now going to rush to deploy against Phoenix. Um, I will, I, you know, I, I do still think you could argue there were counters that they could have tried harder to go to in that Detroit game. Um, but overall, Chris Paul didn't look like himself. Devin Booker didn't look like himself. We're, we're certainly going to talk about those two a lot more, I think, in the upcoming segment. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great bounce back win against Indiana, and that's definitely what we should focus on. Yeah, and I think they set themselves up nicely to go into these other games. More than anything else, ending a week with a winning record, that's, I think, the important thing. And overall, they've done a good job, and, and they have an excellent record so far. What we want to do, it's been 10 games exactly. They're 7-3 and three now. Because 10 games feels like some sort of mark, we're going to play what we're <laughs> calling sample size, small sample size theater, where we're going to take a look at some stats. Sam and I both just grabbed a bunch of stats. We didn't talk to each other about what they are. We're just going to bring them up and touch on them. We're not going to spend a lot of time analyzing this is because I think what's important to understand is at this point of the season, what you're doing is you're taking note of certain things that happened so far this season. And now you're sort of watching that. That's what I'm doing. That's what Sam's doing. Um, and that's what I think a lot of the smart NBA analysts at this time are doing. We're there still needs to in be an the understanding. observation phase. Yes. You're gathering your initial observations. The goal of data is always to generate those new insights, but we're not quite at the analysis and projecting forward stage yet. Obviously, yeah. we're going to talk about what all what we think these numbers mean, but nothing is definitive after 10 games into the season. Right, exactly. I don't think that it's safe to draw specific conclusions about most of these things. Maybe there are certain smaller things, depending on what you picked, 
Sam, I don't know what you picked yet. Uh, why do they not matter too much yet? Well, one, it's been 10 games. That's not that much. There's going to be 72 for the season. But the other part is a lot of the net rating stats, a lot of specific stats about games have to do with the matchups that the, the teams have played so far. Like if the Suns played 10 games and they played nine of the best 10 defenses, for example, their offensive rating might not be that good. And they didn't do that. But that's just an example to show how specific matchups can set overall stats. Okay, so each of us pulled five stats, I believe, that we wanted to just touch on. And we'll Actually, briefly talk four. about them. Sorry. You, you have four? Uh, four. Okay, no, that's no I problem. Know. Because I just found out that we needed five stats. I can we pull a fifth. We didn't need five. I mean, <laughs> okay. I'll start, though, because then All we right. can just go back and forth and end with me. Um, here's one that I picked up. And you know what? We might overlap since we didn't sure. talk about them. So we might overlap. The Suns are currently sixth in the NBA in three-point attempt, attempts, I should say, at 39 attempts per game, which also coincides with them being fifth in three-point makes and ninth in three-point percentages. Obviously, we talked early on about this team adding shooters and how they should be much better at shooting the three so far. Sixth in the NBA in three-point attempts at 39 attempts is something that I think is great for this team. We were just talking about it. A lot of people really didn't like how that Detroit game went because there were so many three-pointers taken. I personally love it. I think that they should continue to take a lot of threes if that's what they're getting. Monty Williams has emphasized that he has never told them to take a certain number of threes. It's just about taking what the offense allows you to get. One of the things he does say commonly is... It's okay to turn down a good shot for a great shot, and that should be the goal of the offense. So there are times, I think, when shooting a three maybe is not the best decision, and they need to work on that. Uh, but more often than not, I, I actually want them to shoot threes that they turn down <laughs> than the other way around. 39 attempts, sixth in the NBA. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, three-point stat that I brought up here? Well, yeah, so it's, obviously it's a big jump from last year. Last year they averaged 32 three-point attempts per game. They're up seven this year to 39. That is significant the reason it doesn't bother me at all is because it doesn't feel rigid like you said it doesn't feel like Monty is putting into place this authoritarian kind of regime where he's going to execute you or send you to the back of the bench right. if, if you take Houston. a mid-range shot right it's not Houston that's that's the point I'm going for so we've seen McHale put the ball on the floor even when he has a spot-up opportunity and try to turn a good shot into a great shot now it doesn't always turn into a great shot sometimes it turns into a worse shot actually but we've seen McHale do it We've seen Cam Johnson do it. As long as you keep the fluid balance for all of those wings, um, Jay Crowder actually, has, I think, is underrated at putting the ball on the floor. He's been better at it than I expected, particularly with kind of just propelling himself forward and exploding to the rim. And, and he's actually gotten to the free throw line a, a decent amount. Um, so, yeah, as long as all of those guys continue to do it and don't operate under the mindset, the rigid mindset of I'm just sitting in the corner and shooting threes, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a great thing. And I think... Um, specifically when you look at the Suns sets what's so cool to me and what I've spoke about all along since before the season is the versatility of having multiple guys you can plug and play into the same play so for instance Spain pick and rolls is something that uh, I think a lot of fans on NBA Twitter love um, and it's uh, it's a set that the Suns run quite a bit this year where you've got kind of this back screener in addition to the front screener who's the big man who's going to roll and then the back screener is going to come out and pop 
I can maybe post a clip of this on my Twitter later so that more people have the opportunity to know what I'm talking about. But the point is, the Suns have this same play. They run it a lot. And as the back screener, the guy who sets a screen for the big man to roll, and then they come out to the three-point line. They've had Devin Booker do that. They've had Cameron Johnson do that. They've had Jay Crowder do it. They've had Langston Galloway do it. And the point is that they have all of these guys from all of these different positions who are capable of of just plug and play into the same place. And it makes everything very fluid. It makes Monty's job a hell of a lot easier as a coach because it means you can deploy more um, different roster and lineup combinations, potentially unique ones that you haven't haven't like technically seen before and still have a certain level of confidence in them that they can go out there and get the job done and execute the right sets. So um, I think it's everything working as designed, and it's great. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, yeah, I've also posted some Spain pick and rolls that I can retweet to help people understand that tomorrow, too, if anybody doesn't get what you're talking about. But what's your first stat? we got to probably speed it up a little bit. Yeah, it's just, sorry, it's, it's just so tempting. Well, th- here, okay, here's one. Devin Booker uh, has shot pretty poorly <laughs> from the free throw line <laughs> so far this year. That's not the stat. Based on how Devin Booker has shot at the free throw line this year, if you had to guess where the Suns rank overall in team free throw percentage, where where would you guess after 10 games? I know the answer, so I'm not going to guess. Well, that, that fucking sucks. All right, way, to, <laughs> way to play along. No, the Suns are second in the NBA in free throw percentage. They're shooting 82.5%. Remember, they shot 83.5% last year, and they set the all-time record for highest free throw percentage. Devin Booker, meanwhile, this year is shooting the lowest free throw percentage of his career. Really, it's been quite crazy. Like, he's he's just not—he's missing. Uh, the number of times he's gone 1 for 2 or even 0 oh for 2 a couple of times has been really weird. However, Painful. the team—let <laughs> me just read these out. And I know you said speed it along, but sorry, I'm going to— No, no, I'm no, Chris, this is fine. I'm Chris Paul right now. I'm slowing the pace down. Cameron Johnson, 100% from the free throw line this year. Campaign, 100%. Galloway, 100%. Chris Paul, 97. Sarich, 90. Bridges, 88. Jay Crowder, 86. Your entire rotation, and then Devin Booker's 77. So not even bad, but just your entire rotation Mm -hmm. shooting at like 86% or higher from the free throw line. That is nuts. Obviously, they have an issue with getting there in the first place. I think we've talked about that. This team isn't generating a lot of free throws that kind of plays into them shooting all these threes that those two things play off each other but when they do get there yeah i mean you you love to see it how can how can you criticize that yeah the best way to maximize your free throw attempts if you're not going to get a lot of them is to make most of them (laughs) so it's nice to see that they're doing that and i think they could easily be at the top of the nba there once devin booker starts making more assuming he will and i think he will um, a big thing that helps with that, first of all, Chris Paul, obviously. Chris Paul second on the Suns in free throw attempts and has made 96% of them, which is great. But also the luxury of having a big man like DeAndre Ayton, who's getting to the line more, not a lot, but more uh, than previously. And only shooting 64% right now, but that's going to go up too, I think. That's going to get closer to the 70 percentile there. And that's a nice thing to have for a guy like him. If he gets under the rim... And he has a chance to score. And if they hack at him to stop him from scoring, that's going to be at least one point and most likely two points in a lot of scenarios. So that's a luxury. Uh, I like that. And, you know, I talked about Devin Booker improving. Here's something that I wanted to point out with Devin Booker as well. Uh, Devin Booker's first six games of this season, 3.8 assists to 5.8 turnovers. A very bad start as far as turnovers for (laughs) Devin Booker, the next four games, the last four games, these last four where I also think that he has picked up 
his scoring and just looked more like Devin Booker in these last four games. He has six assists in each game to just two turnovers. So now back to uh, even technically in that stretch better than last season as far as turnovers. The, the assists are similar to what he's been doing for the last few years, but the turnovers have been turned down a little bit. This correlates with a lot. Obviously, the Suns are a very good passing team, but also uh, we talked about it last week or maybe the week before. I, I think that there's a chance that the Suns could at some point of this season have the least turnovers per game of any team in the league. Totally. And that's something that they're getting pretty close to doing right now. They're also, I believe, second or third right now in assist-to-turnover ratio. I mean, last night, for when we're recording this, it's last night against the Pacers was a great example of how they do that. Very little turnovers. I believe they ended the game with just three turnovers and lots and yeah, lots. There's a little, of little bit of controversy about that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, the box scores were not the same on every site. Some people are saying there was massive fraud. <laughs> Some people are saying, uh, yeah, but I think this is indicative of Devin Booker's ability to get back to normal. We talked about it when he was struggling. Uh, I think maybe we can take a little bit of time on this because I do want to ask you, we did say, is there is there reason to be concerned about Devin Booker? Both of us kind of sided on the side of no. He seems to be improving. The last few games have been good. We can probably just not be concerned at all now, right? <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think Indiana in particular was the perfect litmus test of it because you look at what they do schematically as a defense. Um, you've got Devin Booker going head-to-head with Malcolm Brogdon, a guy who has a 6'11 wingspan. You've got a lot of help defense coming whenever he comes around a pick-and-roll. This is how Indiana plays. They've got Justin Holiday. He's basically Mikhail Bridges, the the Midwest version. Um, and Victor Oladipo, obviously another guy with long arms, who are coming there to help at the nail. They put a lot of pressure on ball handlers um, coming inside the paint. And how did Devin Booker respond to that ball pressure? He had seven assists and zero turnovers. So I think, uh, yeah, last last night's matchup in particular gave me a lot of faith that he, this guy's he's he's going to be fine. And in fact, it, I think uh, I think I do want to make a, a video about this uh, coming pretty soon. So yeah. uh, keep your eyes. Well, your also eyes to add that. to that, to those who haven't seen it, I did recently post a video about on Twitter about how Devin Booker uses his eyes to get shooters and cutters open. And I think it's really interesting in this specific season to point this out because early on Devin Booker was talking about how there was spacing issues that caused him to have a lot of turnovers early in the season. The broadcast was blaming (laughs) DeAndre Ayton, which I thought was completely unfair and I just didn't didn't really agree with. I thought it was true a couple times, but... Very few. I mean, I, I, I brought them all up. I put them all yeah. on, on no, Twitter. No, I know all, you did. <laughs> and so maybe one, maybe two turnovers you could possibly blame on DeAndre. And beyond that, there were shooters that were out of position. And I think more commonly than not, even the times where he's dribbling off of his leg, it's a hesitation that caused it. And the hesitation could have easily been blamed on guys not being in the right spot. But what he's doing a lot of this season is passing to guys without looking at them. And if they're not in the right spot, when you're not looking at them, that ball's going to sail out of bounds or it's going to be right out of the reach and they're going to tip it before the defender picks it up and those turn into turnovers. Obviously now they're more comfortable with each other's new players on this team, new roles even, you know, Mikhail Bridges is shooting a lot more, being trusted a lot more off the dribble. Uh, And I think that has turned into taking care of the ball better and more assists and I think that it will likely continue I also just think in general he's picking up his usage rate 
uh, in these games, even with Chris Paul on the floor, because the team just looks better when he does that. So I have a feeling that will continue. Um, but yeah, go ahead. What's your next one? My next one is, uh, well, it's first take time. It's hot take time. Uh-oh. The Phoenix Suns have a negative 9.2 net rating in the fourth quarter. So much for Mr. Clutch, Chris Paul. What do you think, Mike? What's your <laughs> what's your take? Are the, oh, well, That's the second great... part of this. Sorry, the second part of the stat. So the Suns rank 24th in the NBA in fourth quarter net rating, even though they're seven and three. What do you think? Yes. Uh, first of all, that's a hilarious way to um, frame that question. Uh, and exactly as someone on first take would, uh, because the, all of the context is missing and you just frame one thing and you compare it to something else, sort of the narrative versus the stat. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that's great. Is Chris a, Paul a bum? Yes or no? Is, yeah. Is, is Chris Paul actually clutch when the Suns are getting outscored? Well, look at it this way. The Suns have blown out a few teams and have put... Um, They've put some guys in the game at certain points that maybe wouldn't play fourth quarters normally, and I think that has a big effect on that fourth quarter net rating. Uh, I also think they jumped out to pretty massive leads in the third quarters of a few games, and then teams have cut back into those leads but have never been able to uh, you know, top the Suns in the fourth quarter. And I think that's what matters the most. Holding on to a lead is just as important as like securing it at the end of a game in a fourth quarter. So that doesn't worry me at all. Um, you know, Ricky Rubio struggled a little bit in the clutch. I don't want to throw any dirt on that grave or anything. I love Ricky Rubio, but uh, he struggled a little bit in the clutch last season. And you don't see any of those types of decisions being made from Chris Paul on this team. If anything, it's been a few unlucky turnovers by Devin Booker at the wrong moments that have hurt us in some of the losses this season more than say Chris Paul. Uh, so I'm not, not worried about that at all. I imagine you feel pretty similar. Oh yeah. I would say just go to your next one. I just okay, thought it was, cool. a, I thought it was a fun one to, to break up. I like it. I like it. Convo a little bit. I'm going to start this one with saying, um, I think that Deandre Ayton has been pretty good defensively, but these stats I think stood out to me. I tweeted about them too. Oh, this uh, is the fun one. This uh, this right here is a fun one. Yeah. Deandre Ayton has the worst, uh, net rating of any Suns player individually that plays minutes on the team so far. Which is odd. And more than anything else, I'm going to go over these stats, but more than anything else, if you don't understand these stats or you don't know why they matter, the important way to look at it is the Suns are consistently being outscored by the other team with DeAndre Ayton on the court. And if you look at a lot of the players, so you can look at the starting lineup and say, well, it's because the starting lineup is struggling. If you take DeAndre Ayton out of the equation for the starting lineup, uh, basically all of those guys have positive net ratings without DeAndre Ayton. So I, I wouldn't blame it entirely on the starting lineup in this specific scenario. I don't fully have an explanation for this, but I think it's something at this point that's worth keeping an eye on. Let me uh, let me ask you, so the, it's the defensive rating that's bad or let it's me the read offensive it rating that's bad? Okay. I have all the stats here. The net rating with him on the court is minus 4.2. Listen to this. The net rating with him off the court is plus 24.2. So yeah. it's a 20. And I think that's more of a reflection of Dario is good rather than Aiden is yeah, bad. Yeah, not just Dario, but yeah, I agree with that. Defensive rating with him on the court is 114. The defensive rating with him off the court is 89. I can't explain that one. I, <laughs> I, straight, can't that's, I can't, straight up can't explain and that And, you know, offensive rating 110 with him on the court, offensive rating with him off the court 113. For those who don't know, this is basically points per uh, 48 minutes or something is how they... Uh, 
basically uh, how per many hundred per hundred possessions. Per hundred yeah. possessions. That's how they calculate it for offensive defense rating. Thank you. And um, the important thing to say here is uh, the a defensive rating being eighty nine, offensive rating being one thirteen with him off the court. That's really, really, really good. Unsustainably so. Eighty nine is like would be the best defense ever. I think. Yeah. And one fourteen yeah. would be like one of the worst. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it's that's odd. Crazy. It's very odd. I think because I think he's done relatively well. I will. I will just point out specific things about him real quick before we move on. I think that his switching on defense has been very, very good, notably good so far this season. And I also think it was very good last season. I don't necessarily think it's improved. But I didn't think it needed to in a lot of ways. I think his pick and roll defense specifically has improved. There are still scenarios where other teams can score due to a mistake that he makes. But I think even the best defenders have a few of those every single game. Where I think he's struggling a little bit is recognizing help defense outside of a pick and roll. The advantage of a pick and roll is generally a pick and roll happens right in front of you. Right when you're when you're a big man, the the big man that you're defending is screening, and you can sort of try to contain the ball handler and tag the roll man as much as possible. Both of those things are happening right in front of you. If there's an isolation on his back on the weak side, I'm sorry, on the strong side when he's on the weak side, I think that's where he struggles a little bit more to recognize the timing on helping defensively there. A lot of people will point out, well, is it because he helps and then there's nobody there to get the rebound, which causes offensive rebounds? Uh, no, I don't really think that's the case because I think that would be the exact same problem when Dario Saric is on the court. It's not like when Dario Saric comes in, all of a sudden there's two bigs playing, although that's happened a little bit in the last two games. It's very little. It's It should be, that problem should persist regardless. So I think it's, for me, I think he's done well. But I do think that the fact that they're getting consistently outscored with him on the court is something that I am now going to pay attention to to see if there's anything specifically that's going wrong that we I, could identify I because think, that's a problem. Yeah, that's the perfect and the mature way to approach it. I think it's just yeah, it's the right way to approach it. Um, that's a fascinating observation. I, and I think that's what this is all about. Like, I, I can't explain that. <laughs> Yeah, I can't I can't begin to explain that. But now I'm going to watch it. And, and I think we should revisit maybe 10 games from now. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's good to bring people's attention to the fact that it's happening. But I can't explain it. I just I can't. Yeah, it's odd. Um, yeah, it's odd. I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it. But I, like I said, at this point, I think you could say like the biggest criticism you could probably make for DeAndre in early in the season is that his offensive confidence is like gone. Right. That, well, that, that's what I was going to say is if there were any bones I had to pick with Aiton so far this season, I'm not one of the people who says he should dunk every time. Not by any means, but recently I'm seeing him catch the ball in the pick and roll and not even look at the basket, and, like, that's an issue. Uh, and, and, and like, against the zone coverages, I think Dario Saric on offense has been much more effective at being a guy who can break the zone from the inside out using the right angles and the right dribbling technique. Yeah. But that's all offense stuff. That that shouldn't be reflected in a defensive rating statistic, so I, I, I don't know what's happening on yeah. that end. I don't either. Something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Not not super worried about it right now because I, I mean I would I change. would drop them. By the way, the goal Honestly. at some point ten games from now, like I said, revisit these again and see how they've changed. Yeah. Um, but I do sometimes same. worry about. I do sometimes worry about James Jones just being like, it's not working. Let's figure. Let's make a trade or something, because <laughs> he just doesn't care. He doesn't. Nothing would surprise me with James Jones. Start. At start bench wave. Aiton Sarge Kaminsky go. <laughs> 
uh, it's, I think it's time easy. To, to, to start <laughs> Frank and, and wave DeAndre. Frank does Honestly, have pretty amazing should... stats because he's played two games and with Devin Booker. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> it's a good example of why it doesn't always work in small sample size. What's your next one? Uh, my next one is the Suns. This is uh, not, not an exact numeric stat. It's a descriptive stat, I guess. The Suns currently have a better net rating when neither Devin Booker nor Chris Paul are on the court than their net rating when both of them play at the same time. Yeah. What do you have to say about that? That's really great. <laughs> I mean, it's very surprising. And, 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 and to give you just a little bit more info, what that means, their net rating when neither of them are playing is a flat zero. They're treading water. And their net rating when both of them are on the court is like a minus seven. Yeah. And then, and, and, and what that means, so there's four combinations, right? The two other combinations, both the net rating when it's only Booker and no Paul and the net rating when it's only Paul and no Booker are really, 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 really good. And that's why the Suns are seven and three, essentially. But we're not talking about those two right now. Yeah, um, that's the best possible scenario for the Suns being good is that the the players that play when they're not playing can continue to sustain good play. Um, Cameron Payne being injured could have an effect on that going forward. He has been... I mean, he has been one of the better players off the bench in the NBA this whole season uh, early on. So, you know, uh, how sustainable that is will matter. Am I concerned with Chris Paul and Devin Booker struggling a little bit? Not yet. I think that it's fair to take 10, 15, 20 games even to get fully in the rhythm of playing with two guys that are that ball dominant and also tend to shoot from the same spots on the floor. It's not like... Um, Devin Booker's J.J. Redick and can fit right into that J.J. Redick role. He's not. He likes to shoot from where uh, Chris Paul likes to shoot and vice versa. So that specific uh, dynamic is probably going to take some time to to develop. So I'm not super worried about it. Uh, like I said, I actually think in a lot of cases that's a good thing <laughs> for, for right now. We'll see how sustainable it is going forward. I do find it interesting that when you start to, like the starting lineup I think has a lot to do with that, specifically first quarters. They've been uh, not great in first quarters so far this season. And you start to take those individual starters and take them out of that starting lineup and start to look at how they've looked with other players. And it's been pretty good. And to that to that point, I talked about early on not using the net ratings for Jay Crowder against him, similar to what we just talked about with DeAndre and We're not going to use that against him yet either. Uh, but I do think that Cameron Johnson is making a good point to get more minutes. I tweeted it during the game yesterday. 30 minutes a game should be hit the goal with Cameron Johnson at this point because of how good he's been offensively and defensively. And, you know, there is a point in the season where maybe he is too good to keep out of the starting lineup. I don't think we're there yet, but it's 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 really man, good. He looks really good. All I want to say quickly is sixth man of the year is like we know that's traditionally a guard. Uh, it's It's a guard award. But yeah. if you can get Cam Johnson, he's averaging 13 and four right now. If you can bump him up a few more minutes to, to 30 a game, but yeah. he's coming off the bench. Do you think there's a chance? Um, I don't know. He has to get up to like what? 17, 18 points, 30 game. minutes like, a game. He, be... he can get close to 20 points a game. I, I do think he could, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, he just needs to, keep by the launching. way, he's at 6.7, three point three-pointers attempted a game so far i'm keeping it <laughs> yeah on. i I'm, I'm honestly pretty surprised i thought top yeah. 30 in the nba i think he's top i think he's number 18 for total attempted three-pointers so far and it's crazy how he still managed the balance like he's launching through i mean it's just more volume he's launching threes yeah. but he's also dribbling more 
He's doing yeah. both more. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, it's awesome. Um, who's up, me or you? Uh, I think it's me actually. Okay, I think and I think this will be left. my last. You have one more. Yeah, I've got one more. Let's just do one more each because the last Dope. one I was just going to talk about their overall net rating. It's not that interesting. But this one I like. Devin Booker and Chris Paul are shooting 35% and 37% respectively in isolation situations. Oh, that was going to be my last one. Are you so. serious? That's hilarious. Congrats. I have the updated stat though. When, wait, when did you pull it? This morning. Oh, never mind. Then you have the updated stat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is just the field goal percentage in isolation. Yep. But the Suns are fifth most likely to use isolation possessions this season in the NBA. Yeah. Um, this I like is, it. Well, here's I think it's a it's a problem, right? If you just look at it here, but it's also there's going to be that's going to get better. Thirty five percent and thirty seven percent. That's bad for them. So, yeah. Can I just do the so compared to last year? Yeah. I mean, think about why they did this in the first place. The, the, we're about to hear from Jackson Frank. He's he's going to come on and he's going to talk to us all about this. The Suns have this offense built around these two guys these two guys that's how you you build the elite offense around them the entire reason you're last in pace is to work these guys into the spots that they like the mismatches that they like and then let them go to work obviously other guys are beneficiaries too they're getting open threes they're doing other stuff but chris paul and devin booker in this offense are designed to have more isolation opportunities because the data backs up the fact that they're two of the two of the greatest of their generation at doing it last season chris paul was 75th percentile at OKC and ISO efficiency, Devin Booker was 68th. So to me, personally, if there's anything I could bet on going into this season, something that just, it, there's no way it would regress, it's that Chris Paul and Devin Booker are going to keep making the shots that they've always made. The fact that I see this stat right here, which tells me actually they're not making those shots so far, yeah. I think it's a good thing. I think it's yeah. a good thing because I think it's a sign that positive regression to the mean is coming. And this is the whole reason we're playing small sample size theater. Because it's small sample sizes. There's going to be variants. There's going to be wacky stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can't always suss out what's what's wacky and what's not. But but my bullshit meter is going off a little bit on this one. I think, I think both of these guys are going to get better in those ISO opportunities that, again, the offense is built to give them. And once they start doing that, the offense kicks into a new gear. It's, it's just what we haven't seen yet from them. I think the NBA stats give you stats at minimum 10 minutes a game, minimum 100 possessions or something like that. Uh, The only two guys that show up in isolation stats for the Suns are Chris Paul and Devin Booker, meaning that they're the guys that are isolating the most on this team so far with relatively bad shooting percentages. I know that those two are the only ones so far that show up on NBA.com because I was looking for Cameron Payne, who I assume is shooting... 75% 75% in isolations. And I'm not even joking. It wouldn't surprise me if it was that high. Uh, fifth in the NBA in isolation possessions. That is something that I would like to see go down a little bit. I'd like to see their overall percentages when they shoot in isolation go up. And I'd like to see the overall isolation possessions go down a little bit. I think it, it late in the game, they're allowing them to isolate a lot. And I think that's actually yeah. good for preparing them for playoff basketball because the way defenses work in the playoffs is lots of switches and shutting down plays and it it just boils down to isolations at some point Mm. so getting good at it getting used to it in the 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 specific roles that they have on this team is not necessarily a bad thing but maybe maybe 10th in the nba maybe even 15th in the nba in isolation possessions are okay yeah i think i agree with you i wouldn't mind if it goes down but I think the point of 0.5 offense is kind of, it's it's a little bit counterintuitive. Sometimes we talk about quick decisions. 0.5 is all about making quick decisions, pass, dribble, or shoot. 
And so people think that that means the pace should be high. So they think, why why are they last in pace? I think the point of 0.5 offense is you go into your set making quick decisions. The first 5, 10 seconds, you've got pitches, you've got weaves, you've got screens, you've got all sorts of crazy ball movement. And the ultimate goal, sometimes you're going to get an early shot, early in the shot clock, that is a good look. And you, you know, you're stressing if you're Monty Williams, don't pass up those opportunities. But sometimes all 0.5 is going to give you is it's going to give you the mismatch you want. And from that point on, if it's Devin Booker, if it's Chris Paul with the ball in their hands, with the mismatch that they want, yeah. with the final 10 seconds of the shot clock, that's where it devolves into an isolation. And you yeah. take those. It's I, I almost think those are by design as well. Or sometimes it's it's DeAndre Ayton in the post with with a small and you want to work that mismatch as well. I actually think they're not working Not often that enough to even show up on the stats. Exactly. Me. As often as they could. I definitely think yeah. they could do that one more. Yeah. I agree with you. I think using the shot clock as a guide for those isolations is probably the best way to approach it. And maybe at some point as we move on with this season, it will be interesting to look at those specific isolation possessions and when they come in the shot clock to see how that would change how we feel about it specifically. But I think that, like you said, I think that's a good sign for this team that they're going to start to get a little better in those statistics and that will make them even better overall as a team. And most importantly, that it leaves you room for error. Like, you don't need Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson to keep shooting 50% from deep or or 45 or whatever they're doing the entire season because you know eventually Chris Paul and Devin Booker are going to look like Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And at that point, they, they, you know, they have the ability to have off games, which right now it kind of feels like they don't. It kind of feels like in that Detroit game, you know, like Cam Johnson and Jay Crowder or Mikhail, when they all went to sleep, the offense died. So that that shouldn't happen as often in the future if our star players, quote unquote, actually look like star players. And I think they will. That's right. All right. That's good stuff. I think that's a good uh, segment that we can bring back every once in a while uh, this season. And, And it's a good idea to not read too much into these stats. I'll repeat that again right now because things will change dramatically as the season rolls on so hopefully if, if it's not like this Detroit game hopefully after they play some Eastern Conference teams a lot of those net rating stats will just go up across the board and I think that'll make a big difference overall all right let's take a quick break and when we come back Jackson Frank will be joining us to talk about the Suns hot start we'll be right back hey everyone I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month. The same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited. So get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com join. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. All right, I'm very excited for this. Joining us... A writer for the Step Back, Dime Up Rocks, and Liberty Ballers, Jackson Frank. Jackson, how are you doing? Not bad. Um, I, we were just talking a little bit before this. It's, it's a little bit of a weird day to talk about the NBA because a game was just postponed due to them not having uh, the teams not having enough players to actually play the game. So it does feel like there's a little bit of uncertainty looming over the entirety of the NBA. And we'll see how much different the tone and tenor of this podcast will be next week when we have another episode next week because a lot of things can happen in a single week with something like this. But we did bring you on to talk about the Suns because the Suns have had a very interesting start, a hot start, um, currently the best record in the NBA as we're recording this, uh, tied with a few other teams. Obvious big additions to the Suns, Chris Paul, Jay Crowder and all that. But I do want to ask you from a general perspective. I consider you, Jackson, one of the people who has watched the Suns the last few years. You know, obviously, when you cover the entirety of the NBA, you can't watch every game for every team. But it does feel like you've kept tabs on the Suns at the very least. When you watch the Suns this year, who they are now, what has stood out to you as far as how different they look now compared to before? I think it's, you know, it's got to be the defense, right? I mean, they've, they've, come down to earth a little bit you know I think they were first or second for like a week and a half or so um, they're still I think sixth or seventh in defensive rating but I mean if you would have said uh, you know when the Suns drafted DeAndre Ayton a, a team you know who whose franchise you know quote-unquote franchise cornerstones are, are Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and have a better defensive rating ranking in the league and that's why they're that's why they have the best record in the league I think you would have been pretty surprised so 
Um, the style they play, and obviously Aiton's growth has helped that a lot, but the personnel around Booker that they have um, and the way they kind of maximize uh, this, all of this perimeter defensive talent um, has been really impressive. And so I think that's the biggest thing that stands out to me is, you know, there's a team where you know, Devin Booker is arguably the, their best player. You know, I think him and CP3, you can kind of, you can go however you wish. But a guy like Devin Booker who struggled so mightily early on as, as a defender um, is now on a team that has the best record in the NBA and has a has the seventh uh, ranked or sixth ranked defense in the NBA. Now, you personally, Jackson, when you watch the Suns on defense this year, is there a guy that you kind of tend to go towards in, in terms of singling out? For credit, or, or is it really like a, a full schematic approach, a little bit of Chris Paul, a little bit of DeAndre Ayton, a little bit of, of Jay Crowder, and so on? Yeah, I think it's really got to be a collective effort. Um, you know, obviously, Mikhail Bridges, you know, is the guy who everyone knows is, you know, probably their their best, you know, defender in terms of where he ranks among his contemporaries as a wing defender. But um, obviously, Booker's made a big step forward on the ball, and he still has, his, you know, some, he dies on screens at times still too much, and you know, maybe he'll ball watch, but. Um, given a lot better effort than you, you saw even a year and a half ago. Um, Mikhail does his thing. He and, he and DeAndre Ayton are such a good pick-and-roll def- defense duo, um, the way they're able to shut down so many things. Chris Paul, obviously, is still very good. Uh, Javon Carter and Cameron Payne are, are pests. Jay Crowder is able to guard you know two-and-a-half positions and, and really be physical and give some teams issues on the ball. So it really does feel like a collect- collective effort, and that's that's the sign of a really good defense Um you know, I think sometimes, you know, just in general, people will say, oh, you know, this guy can win defensive player of the year because he's anchoring the, the fourth best defense or whatever. But it's like the best defenses have, you know, from top to bottom in the rotation, a bunch of good defenders or at least guys who aren't glaring negatives. And that's that's really what I've seen from the Suns this year. The Suns have set out a goal to be the number one defense so far. Not quite that. Uh, but I think it's an interesting goal for the team, especially the way that they're constructed. We talked about it before the season, trying to figure out exactly how good they could be on defense and and I sort of settled on top 10 which is where they are right now uh but you know they've they've gone as high as like third best defense and obviously net ratings and all the stats this early in the season as we talked about in the first part of this podcast are you know they're going to change a lot as the season goes on assuming it does (laughs) and those are going to change and those are going to be drastically different at the end of the season than they are now Maybe not, but uh, they have this chance to be drastically different. When I watch this team play defense, I generally think that what they're doing seems to be sustainable. There's not anything that's like super drastic. There are, you know, to start the season, they were trying to limit the amount of three-pointers the other teams were taking. That seems to be something that's steady. Obviously, it goes up and down game to game. When you watch the defense and the way they play defense, is this something that you think is going to be sustained throughout the rest of the season, maybe going into the playoffs? Yeah, I do think it is. I, I, I would have to see kind of where some of the shooting numbers against them, you know, I don't know exactly where they are in terms of like, you know, shooting luck from three or from the free throw line. But I do think it's sustainable because from the games I've seen, um, they force teams into really tough shots a lot, um, which is the mark, I think, of a sustainable defense. Uh, they don't allow easy shots. They they force teams to, to play late into the shot clock a lot. Um, that really stood out to me in that, that win against Utah on New Year's Eve. Um, just a bunch of possessions where they were giving the Jazz hell uh, on defense, um, denying easy passes, denying handoffs, um, just kind of enveloping Donovan Mitchell in the pick and roll. Um, so that sort of stuff, I think the approach there has been really impressive to me. Um, 
And obviously, they, you know, they haven't played. They've, they've played the Kings a couple times, the Pelicans, the the Raptors, and the Pistons. But they've played good offenses. They beat Indiana yesterday. Obviously, the defense wasn't great against Indiana, but Indiana's got a really good offense. Um, they beat Dallas, you know, at the start of the year. They've, they've beaten the Clippers, and the, or they've played against the Clippers and the Nuggets. So um, it's not like they just played a bunch of bad offenses, uh, and that's why their defense has been so good so far. They, they have a really smart approach, and they, they force teams into tough shots, and they've had a schedule that is pretty balanced in terms of you know, projecting for the final 62 games of the year. You know, you mentioned that Indiana game yesterday. I thought that was a really interesting one. I'm not going to talk about it at length if, if you didn't watch, but I do think it kind of speaks to the versatility um, defensively, which is what's so interesting. I was uh, afraid of that matchup, you know, Indiana being one of the only teams that, that still plays big between Sabonis and Turner. Um, and the Suns, what I wanted the Suns to do is exactly what Monty Williams ended up doing. He put Aiton on Sabonis for the majority of the game, who was quite successful in that matchup, and then left Jay Crowder to, to mostly guard Miles Turner on the perimeter. Um, but again, I think it just kind of reinforced the idea that it all comes down to DeAndre Ayton. Uh, in so many ways this year, his ability to switch on guys with Mike is something Mike and I have talked about on this podcast at length. Um, but still kind of anchoring the defense, mostly as a drop defender. Um, but yeah, the the one through five switchability is is really interesting. The other the, uh, thing that stands out to me about this defense early on, and, and I don't know if it's something you've noticed, Jackson, but um, just how... In the past, this was always a very aggressive team at playing the passing lanes, and it was kind of they they put an emphasis on trying to get easy buckets in transition. They were a young, athletic team with wiry guys like Mikhail Bridges, um, but but other guys too in the past couple of years. Think of like a Josh Jackson or T. Anthony Melton, um, and they were playing the passing lanes and they were generating a lot of steals and blocks. And that's kind of gone this year as the Suns have slowed down their pace. They're now dead last uh, in the NBA in pace. They're 29th in steals. They're 20th in blocks, even with DeAndre Ayton doing as well as he is um, contesting inside. It's just kind of interesting to see them playing a much more conservative approach and and still having that success on defense. I don't know if you uh, have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that that's interesting to me, honestly, because if, you know, uh, it feels like they play kind of like a conservatively, like, I don't know, as a conservatively aggressive or aggressively conservative, because like I mentioned, they are so good at you know denying passes and stuff but they're not constantly darting into the passing lanes and stuff like that um they're just really good at you know like forcing teams to not do it do what that off the offense wants um so that honestly isn't something that stood out to me because i just said if you would ask me where they're ranked i'd probably say fairly high because they get because they're so you know good about denying passes and whatnot but um, you know, thinking about it more in depth, they're good about doing that without compromising positioning, which is really impressive and key too. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's certainly an, an interesting, um, you know, kind of change from past years because, yeah, as you mentioned, they've they've really tried to kind of up their transition offense and with these young athletic wings that they've had in past years. Um, but, but when you get Chris Paul, he he likes to do things as as he wishes offensively. So it makes sense that um, the pace is is so slow this year from the Suns. Now, you mentioned DeAndre and obviously a big part of the defensive improvement so far. But something we talked about at the beginning of this episode, we after 10 games, we decided to take a bit of a deep dive into some stats just to take a look at where they're at after 10 games. And, you know, as we were talking about, they can change. But right now, if you look at the on-off stats with DeAndre, the Suns are actually playing much better defense with him off the court. Uh, now... Of course, we talked about how that doesn't quite match the eye test, and I think there's something to the fact that he's playing against some of the better 
big men when he's on the court too it you know whereas the bench can play against maybe some of the backup big men and i think that can make a big difference but do you think there's something to that do you do you think that that matters at all at this point or have you noticed any sort of flaws in the defensive game that maybe the average fan wouldn't notice with deandre ayton i i haven't really noticed anything i've i've pretty i've been pretty impressed with Aiton so far this year defensively um and like i said it's so early like 10 games is is, is not much. I mean, so he's playing. So Aiton is, let's see, I mean, he's playing. Uh, I'm trying to pull up how many minutes per game he's playing. Uh, he's, so let's say, you know, he's, I'm trying, my goodness, I pull it. Uh, he's playing just about 31 a game. So that's, that's 170 minutes without him. Uh, that's not a ton, honestly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a decent amount, but it's so, it's so subject to, you know, bench success. And the Suns bench has been really good. You know, that, that going to that small ball five with Dario. Um, has, has worked really well. Obviously, he has some issues because he can't really jump over a credit card. But um, <laughs> he's he's re- he's really good about verticality. He's he's really really strong. Has a great base, and so I think the defense, uh, you know, just based on what I've seen, this is not this is all anecdotal. It has been able to hold up with him because Dario has been so good on the interior, and those and some of those bench lineups have been really really good together um, with guys like Javon Carter and Cameron Payne and uh, and. Uh, even Cam Johnson's, you know, a, a solid enough defender, especially for a guy whose primary value is as a shooter and off-ball player offensively. So, yeah, I, I don't read too much into it. I've been impressed with what I've seen from DeAndre Ayton. Um, his he's holding guys to uh, 11 points lower than their their average field goal percentage within six feet of the rim this year. Um, I don't know how that compares to last year, but it's certainly it's better. Um, it's it's, it's it, a little bit better. And it's even better. It's way better than his rookie year. Obviously, yeah. he's a much better defender now. But right. um, yeah, whenever I've watched the Suns, I've been impressed with Aiden and how he he works in conjunction, uh, especially with McHale and and CP with those guys. You know, being aggressive, fighting or getting around screens and kind of hounding ball handlers. Um, and now he's able to make things happen. You know, in the lane there too. So um, if we're thirty games in, maybe it's a different story. But ten games in, one hundred and seventy-four minutes or whatever, I'm not I'm not reading too much into it based off what I've seen. You know, just as a quick aside, because you brought up Dario, I kind of have to ask, you've covered the Sixers so much over the past several years. Was there ever discussion um, when Dario was in Philly about could he play the five? I mean, it wasn't really a necessity uh, given the roster composition back then, but was there ever? Because I think Dario Saric has been such an interesting story for the Phoenix Suns over the past year, because before the bubble, it didn't really seem like the Suns were likely to bring him back. He comes back in the bubble. He plays out of his mind for eight games um, as primarily a backup five. We had seen him in that role a little bit before that, but but that's when he really came, uh, rose to a new level in that role. And now he's just the, the de facto backup five, and it's where he's getting the majority of his minutes. Was that something you saw coming um, at all back then or, or something you thought he had the capacity to do, or has it been a little bit more of a surprise? Uh, yeah, I saw it coming, honestly. I wrote an article about it uh, in... I think in the, the, the season leading up to 2018-19, so right before he, so when he played however many games with the Sixers and they got traded to Minnesota, um, I wrote an article saying, should we explore Dario Saric as, as a small ball five? I talked about his interior defense, his passing, his, his floor spacing, um, how that would complement Ben Simmons. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, it was something that I've, I've long been a proponent for and, and thought it was the best way to hide some of his issues defensively um, because he's, his strengths are hide his issues and accentuate his strengths um so i i I hope i'm not sounding like i'm tooting my own horn or anything but it is it is a role that i thought he could play uh and it's cool that he's he's in a system and setting now where that can be amplified 
Um, but I don't think they ever really considered it. Um, I don't have the numbers on it, but I'm I don't, on, on me available right now. But um, I think I probably mentioned in that article, and it's on Liberty Ballers. Um, I'm sure I can try and find it. Um, I don't, I, but I, I, he definitely didn't play very many minutes at center ever with, with the Sixers. Um, but it is a role that I always thought he could excel in because, um, as I mentioned, it was the best way to kind of maximize him defensively. Yeah, and I think even offensively, at least from what we've seen, uh, the ability to play five out with Dario Saric just brings out his playmaking so much more. The space to actually pump fake and sort of drive into the rim, uh, it helps a lot with him because he's not super fast. So I think if there's an extra guy clogging the lane, they can sort of help out on him a little easier. Whereas if there's a little bit more space, he can sort of rumble his way to the rim and find guys either cutting or on the perimeter for shots a little easier. Space helps him a lot, which makes a lot of sense. It helps everyone a lot in the NBA. The he's, Suns made a, a, a massive... I just want to say he's also our best weapon at breaking the zone um, is the obvious thing we've seen from him so far. Is the, the past two games for the Suns specifically, we've seen a, a large percentage of the possessions. Um, the defenses deploy a zone, and, and it got them a couple nights ago. Last night against Indiana, it didn't. And a big reason it didn't is because Dario at the five is, is just so much more capable of yeah. doing things. <laughs> yeah. I would say, just to push back on that, the best non-Devin Booker uh, option or weapon for for the zone. Because I still think if you compare sort of the Detroit sort of disaster game against the zone to, to Indiana, a lot of it had to do with just Devin Booker breaking past that three-point line defense and getting to that mid-range as well and being able to get fouled. But yeah, I agree with that. He makes a huge difference just with the playmaking from that space specifically. But the Suns made a big addition in Chris Paul and I think from a lot of people from a lot of outside perspectives watching the Suns he's the guy that he's like the guy that's going to get a lot of credit for how well the Suns are playing from my perspective I don't think Chris Paul has I think he's done well and I think he does deserve a lot of credit but I don't quite think that he's been Chris Paul yet I think there's still a lot of room for him to get better and thereby make the team better as the season goes along You've watched some games, Jackson. You know Chris Paul. We all know Chris Paul, and you know the Suns pretty well. What have you thought about the fit with Chris Paul so far? Yeah, I I think it's certainly still a work in progress. Um, part of that is Paul just hasn't quite found his footing. He's at forty three percent from the field, twenty nine and a half percent from three, forty seven percent on two pointers. Um, he's so far he kind of looks like the guy we saw that final year in Houston compared to what we've seen pretty much every other year of his career. So. Um, I think that is part of it, but also I think he is still learning how to adjust to playing next to a, a guy like Devin Booker who is you know better than him offensively at this point and who kind of, I think at times, Paul is still a little too deliberate in the way he um, approaches it offensively. I think sometimes he'll, he'll pass up open catch and shoots, and sometimes he's getting better better shots for a guy who does that, but other times he'll, he'll kind of pass up an open catch and shoot create a, you know, kind of go into a side pick and roll or t- top of the key pick and roll and take one of those kind of those tough pull-ups that he likes. Um, so maybe that'll won't look as damaging once, once slash if the shooting, re- you know, kind of regresses positively. Um, but I do think at least offensively it, it is, it's still a work in progress. Um, and, but defensively, I think he can, he's, he's making a lot of plays. He's, uh, you know, it's weird. He's only, he's had a career low uh, steal rate this year. Obviously that that's part of it is a reflection of, of the Suns' uh, scheme, you obviously see with a guy like Mikael Bridges, who's st- kind of seems like his block and steal numbers have, have, have swapped this year. Um, mm. 
but I but I've been impressed defensively with with Paul. I think he still continues to be a very good guard defender. Um, still getting hands on on plays and whatnot at times for deflections, getting open screens, being a pest in pick and roll defense. So um, I think it's one of those things where he certainly helped. But as you as you mentioned, uh, he is by no means the, the sole the sole reason this team is seven and three and looks to be a legit playoff team that could get home court advantage. Um, is playing really well. Um, still, still a work in progress for me, and I, I'm curious to see kind of how the offense shakes out. Because if I recall, the the starting five's offensive or numbers together <laughs> haven't been very good. That's where I was going um, next. So I'm glad you brought <laughs> it up. Um, but, and I think, but yeah, that's that's kind of where I think that's part of that is, is Paul still adjusting. Right. Well, so the the natural place I want to connect it, Devin Booker, as Mike said earlier, is is a guy that you Jackson, you've watched a ton of. Devin Booker over the years you've you've written a lot of articles about him and I've seen you say that he's one of your favorite players with his shot profile and and his offensive versatility just kind of the way he gets to his spots Uh, that being said we haven't seen I think the usual Devin Booker yet he's still averaging close to five turnovers per game I think we saw more of that guy come out last night but again that was the Indiana game so um averaging close to five turnovers per game the net rating when Chris Paul and Devin Booker play together so far is actually negative which is very interesting on a seven and three team. So, do you think there is any cause for concern there, um, between in talking about the fit between those two guys, or is it just small sample size stuff? And and you wouldn't necessarily blame either Chris Paul or Devin Booker one more than the other for their inability to mesh immediately. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's cause for concern. It would be something that I would monitor with a, a close eye, I guess. Not because I don't want to say like I think there is definitely something like. Suns fans and analysts and writers and whatnot should make note of that, and there's there definitely have been some problems at this point. Um, and I wrote an article uh, over at the Step Back when the Suns did acquire CP3 and and talked very positively about how he would impact them offensively. But I did mention that it would require some adjustment from Paul um, to be a little less deliberate in his style, and that would probably be the, the biggest hurdle to why he might not mesh as well as you'd think, especially early on. Um, I feel I just want to. I feel like I'm talking about all the things I get right for the record. I write a ton of stuff and tweet a lot of stuff that is wrong, <laughs> just, just to be clear. Um, but I think that is that is one hurdle that you have to work past. And I think hopefully Paul is a smart enough and adaptable enough player that um, he'll start to, maybe he'll realize that maybe 15 or 18 games in, okay, maybe I, I don't quite have that, you know, that, that same pull-up jumper I had last year I've had. Okay, I, I got to be quicker on the catch and shoots. I got to be be more decisive when I am working off the ball next to Booker. Um, and Booker's got to realize, okay, you know, I don't have full autonomy anymore. I can't I can't be quite as sloppy. I think I think one of the things that he's improved but has still kind of been something you see from him is he has been a little sloppy at times as a passer. Um, tremendously talented passer. The manipulation that we've seen the last year and a half or so is incredible. Um, but he still does have a tendency to be a little a little careless with some of his reads and not quite as, as locked in as you'd like. And I think that is a little more easily digestible when he has full autonomy and I and I know he's he's always been a good off ball player, but you know he's never had a guy like CP3 to orchestrate offense next to him. So um, I think those are both areas for improvement with them. Um, Booker realizes he's going to play off the ball a little more, and and when he does have the ball in his hands, he can't you know be you know he doesn't have he doesn't have as many possessions to you know not necessarily throw away, but possessions to explore reads and, and passes that he might not otherwise make. Um, and CP has just got to be more, a little less deliberate in his approach offensively next to Booker, if all that makes sense. I kind of ramble, but I hope it, it is uh, clear. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense to me. And I, something that I've been just sort of pointing out that sort of illustrates that is uh, Chris Paul doesn't really shoot catch-and-shoot threes like at all. Maybe one a game, 
is is what he can get to and that's relatively normal that's not the Suns that's with every team and that just sort of illustrates his comfortability with just sort of running it as soon as he catches it it's like a new play starts on that perimeter because uh, he's just more likely to find someone than take that shot himself or attack the closeout and shoot from mid-range he's just not very likely to just be a catch and shoot off the ball threat he's more of a secondary playmaker and in his case uh, one of the best point guards ever uh, probably should be the primary playmaker for a lot of possessions. So I agree with you. I think that'll take a little bit of time for them to get used to. And I think it's not just his chemistry with Devin Booker. Uh, I don't think that Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton have offensive chemistry yet either. I think that's something that they're still sort of working on. It, it It's still a little sloppy so far. So it'd be nice to see that get together a little bit better because if that does, the offense could click in a new way, I think. But Jackson... A few months ago, I made a joke on one of your tweets about just tweeting the name Mikhail Bridges and how uh, that'll get 100 likes from Suns fans. And then by the end of the night, Mikhail Bridges was trending uh, 8,000, 10,000 tweets or whatever it ended up being. Just people tweeting his name over and over again. So I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about Mikhail Bridges. <laughs> I love him. He just had his career high 34 points. Suns fans love him a lot. I think... It's one of those, I think he's become one of those guys that does not really get talked about a lot sort of in basketball media at large. So Suns fans have now latched on to him even more maybe than other players on the team. Also, he just makes no mistakes. That's He's a guy that just makes no mistakes, so it's easy to love him. Uh, his growth has been pretty crazy, so feel free to just gush about him if you'd like. But I'd also like to get your perspective on how good do you think Mikhail Bridges can be based on what we've seen so far this season? Yeah, um, so yeah, that, that was a hilarious night during during the bubble, uh, <laughs> which was really fun. That that entire Suns run was really cool, and how it, you know, it seemed like all of all of NBA Twitter became Suns fans during that time. And, um, but yeah, I've been. I mean, Mikhail. I, I wrote an article about him on Time Up Rocks during the bubble. I think um, talking about how how good he already was, and um, God, I. I I hate this. I feel like I'm, I'm talking about all my things. I, I say hey, it's why you're on this podcast. It's, <laughs> we brought you on because specifically because we knew you could do this. It's because we followed you. You know the last we because you've we been have right. So many more listeners, right? We have so many more listeners than we do a couple years ago. But that was you haven't been on our pod in I think two years now. So it was overdue. Uh, awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I just, uh, but yeah, I mean, he the the biggest thing that has been encouraging to me, honestly, has been the way his jumpers returned um and i wrote i mentioned that in the piece is that i don't recall exactly when it was but it felt like last year the hitch just kind of disappeared and um and he was more willing and he was he was quicker with things and and now you look at he's got a he's got a three-point rate of uh 577 uh it's the highest of his career it's much higher than last year it's a little higher than his rookie year um but now he's hitting them at 47 percent which obviously I don't think he's going to do that, but he was an elite off-ball shooter in college at Villanova. Um, so I, I don't think him being a, a 39 to 41% guy on, on big volume uh, is by any means uh, out of the question. I think that's certainly sustainable for him. Um, I don't think he's going to be a 66% true shooting guy, but he was 62% <laughs> last year. Um, I think that's well within reason. He's, he's down to 52% on twos. Last year he was at 61%. Um, I think probably part of that is he's had a little bit more expanded like on-ball role this year mm-hmm. um, for what I've seen. 
And so um, I think he could certainly get that up a little more which to offset you know, his likely regression from three. Um, but he continues to be an incredible defender. Um, the, the game that stands out, obviously, is that one against the Jazz. I keep talking about that, but I think that was kind of the, the most impressed I've been with the defense um, so far. Maybe there are other games where they've been better, but I was really impressed with that, especially in a Jazz offense that has kind of multiple guys, and it's a pretty creative offense. Um, but with Mikhail, he just kind of shut down Donovan Mitchell, forced him into a lot of tough t- shots. Um, so he's he's it's kind of the perfect pairing now, where his his offensive growth and his floor space and his is kind of matching you know the defensive output he's he's been at for you know kind of two plus years now, ever since he entered the league basically. Um, and so yeah, I think you know I think he's a guy who could certainly be a you know a top thirty to forty player. Honestly, I don't know if he'd ever quite be. I, I would say impact-wise, um, I think I say that just because you know there there are guys who play in, in less optimal roles, whereas I think Mikhail is in a really really good spot, and so um, you know top thirty would kind of imply he could be an all-star. I don't think he'd be quite that good, but I think impact in his role, he'd certainly kind of be you know a top thirty, top forty guy. Um, I, there, are, I haven't really looked at any metrics this year, especially because it's such a small sample. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised when stuff starts to come out that. Um, he ranks very highly, yeah. um, assuming he continues to, to score the ball well, and the defense is always going to be there. Um, but yeah, Mikhail is just a guy that I've liked for a while, and I, I, it's really cool to see him um, kind of take off offensively to match what he's been doing defensively for a while now. I mean, I will tell you it's early, so you know we're, we're not putting too much stock into it, but he does lead the Suns in VORP right now, and it's kind of interesting that you know VORP isn't the be-all, end-all stat. It's just a one to throw off uh throw out there off the top of my head but Devin Booker I think ranks seventh or eighth <laughs> on the Suns roster in Vorb right now because of all all of his turnovers so it really kind of has been Mikhail Bridges and, and Cam Johnson to an extent Jay Crowder too who are the advanced stat darlings of this team so far um I want to put you on the spot real quick and use your own words against you uh don't worry this isn't a gotcha it's uh, it's a good thing, actually. Um, a tweet from Jackson Frank dated January 1st. You said the Suns have surrounded elite shot makers Devin Booker and Chris Paul with an elite defense and creative offensive scheme. That's dangerous. Uh, end quote. Like I said, you had nothing to worry about. All positive stuff. The question that I have for you is, uh, you say that's dangerous. How dangerous? Um, have we recalibrated our expectations for what the Suns can do in a playoff setting now? And uh, and if so, you know, what do you think that is? Um, I, I would still say I would have them as, uh, so I think I did a, I did a Western Conference predictions on Locked On Suns with Brendan Clean right before the season started. And I think I had them fourth or fifth. I want to say fifth. I think I had them in a four or five matchup with Dallas. Um, but I, but I tried to preface multiple times. That I thought that tier was really close. Um, I don't think that tier is as close anymore. I think there are definitely some differentiators and I think the Suns could certainly get the three seed. Um, they could fare higher, you know, with some load management to maybe the L.A. teams. Um, but I could see them, you know, taking a couple of games, maybe three games, you know, if things break right. Like, I, I don't think they'd make the Western Conference Finals. Um, I still think the Lakers are the, are the best team. I know and the, uh, the Clippers have revamped some things. But um, I, I could see if things break right and Chris Paul is who he was last year and, and he and Booker kind of find themselves that kind of are able to maximize that pairing offensively. This is a team that I think could make the Western Conference Finals. I wouldn't bet on that, but I think what I've seen and, and the coaching and the defense and the, the, the star talent you have at the top um, and the complimentary wings you have, um, you, know, you mentioned that, that kind of Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, and Mikhail Bridges are the, 
the darlings of this team so far analytically. And I think that speaks to how well they're set up for success, um, you know, with, you know, by Monty, by Booker, by CP. Um, and so I think this is a really, really good team. I, I think they certainly will be a, a three or a four seed, five seed. Um, I, I don't know exactly where. It's so, it's so early. There's so little separation still. I think there are like five teams. There are five and four in the West or something like that. Um, but I could see if things break right and they're able to maximize this the CP book tandem. Uh, they could certainly make make a, a really deep run, uh, probably the Western Conference Finals. And so uh, I've been really impressed, and I think it's kind of only further solidifying how much how much I like this team uh, and how much I like the move they made to get CP3 in the offseason. Jackson, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, Jackson writes for the Step Back, Dime Up Rocks, and Liberty Ballers, which is a Philadelphia 76ers blog. You can follow Jackson Frank at at JackFrank underscore JJF. We appreciate you for coming on. Jackson, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Um, not at the moment. I, I think, well, I guess I'll have a piece on Damanis Sabonis coming out next day or so. Um, obviously, Suns fans are very familiar with him, especially yeah. after that third quarter. He's so had. good. Um, but other than that, I'll just keep keep doing NBA and NBA draft work and Sixers coverage in those places. I, I appreciate all the kind words from you, uh, from the two of you, and appreciate you giving me a chance to talk to the Suns, who have been uh, very, very impressive and, and fun so far this year. Thank you very much, Jackson. Of course. It just raises everybody's effort. Um, like I said, we really get to scrapping and, and going after teams um, and that energy level really picks up, I think we can be pretty dangerous and I think we have been pretty dangerous. Um, so I love it and everybody gets hyped. You see the bench getting hyped and, and you know, especially in, in games where there's no fans, you can you take that wherever you can get it. You take that energy wherever you can get it. Um, and, and so that was big for us tonight. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.